Today we're going to be looking at just two verses uh, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 18 and 19. And to open up, I want to share with you a quote from one of my favorite authors, uh, G.K. Chesterton, a British thinker, wrote a book um, about 100 years ago called What is Wrong with the World? In his opening uh, line, I love that. He's like, the problem, uh, what is wrong with the world is that we never ask what is right. Uh, and he, he has this to say on marriage, which I think is really profound. He says, if Americans can be divorced, I love this, he's British. Notice he puts all the blame on America for, <laughs> for the rise of divorce. Uh, he says, if Americans can be divorced for incompatibility of temper, I cannot conceive why they are not all divorced. <laughs> I've known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. I think that's a very profound and insightful look at the realities and the distinctions between uh, men and women and the challenges that we face uh, in marriage, because here's the thing, the decline of marriage and the redefining of family in our current society uh, has really impacted us as a church. Uh, the church has been subjected to a continual uh, narrative by culture and society to rethink marriage and its meaning and its purpose. And we have to, once again, as I say, week after week after week, we have to learn how to view culture through the lens of Scripture, not Scripture through the lens of culture. We can't reinterpret Scripture to fit into the norms of culture because culture has not given us anything worth following when it comes to marriage and the family. I think that this is important because once marriage was seen as an opportunity to honor God and enrich the community, today it is seen as a vehicle for personal growth. I think traditional marriage was understood to be a lifelong bond in which both husband and wife were expected to sacrifice their individual desires for the good of the relationship. I think this actually speaks into the purpose of God's actual design for marriage when Paul repeats the Genesis account in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. Whenever I, whenever I um, officiate a wedding, I always begin with establishing the, the, the biblical vision of the covenant in marriage is not a man-made uh, vehicle for relationships, but a God-given means by which our relationship with Christ is made visible through our self-sacrificing, our surrender to one another. And marriage is a place where all the, the blemishes of human relationship and experience can be, can be experienced in all of its robust fullness. Uh, it also is a place where we, as we surrender to one another, have the ability to actually press into the challenges and love each other toward the vision that Christ has for us as his bride. I think this is important for us to understand because as Tim Keller points out in his, in his really helpful book, The Meaning of Marriage, and if you are thinking about married or newly married and haven't read that, I would encourage you to read it. it was, it's really good. But he says that marriage should not be a consumer relationship, which places the individual needs first 
and lasts for only as long as it seems mutually beneficial. It should be a binding covenant. This is why Jesus leaves, uh, he's, he, when he talks about marriage, he isn't interested. He's not, he's not attempting to give us, when can I get divorced? When can I get out of this? Because he wants you to treat it as binding. He wants you to treat it the way that he has covenanted with you as your savior, as your Lord. In fact, I think one of the helpful ways that we can actually view, uh, view the marriage covenant, that once again, if I could borrow from Tim Keller, is if we would view it the way that we bind ourselves to our children. Isn't it interesting that, that marriages will dissolve, but parents don't generally abandon their kids? I, I mean, I am a child of divorce. Uh, I was raised by my mom and a few, and, and a few stepdads. And I think it's been a, a tragic reality. That is not, I can speak from, from experience that that is not God's good design. It's not God's intention. It's heartbreaking to actually change stepbrothers and stepsisters every few years. It's difficult to build important, meaningful, necessary relationships. As a child, uh, the father figure is an important figure just as the mother is as well. And to have, to have changing dads is not beneficial for the psychology, for the, for the psyche of a young, of a young man. Um, and I can tell you that it created glitches and in my temperament that will never be, that I'll never be without. I've just learned to live with, and God has the incredible ability to redeem even our worst glitches uh, and to use them for good. But I think that this is important for us to understand. If we were to think of covenant, the way that parents' devotion um, to their children is, this would be helpful for you, for you who are married, who are um, experiencing the challenges of, of communication breakdown, of, of even thinking, do I even like this person? Think about, if you're a parent here, think about the challenge of kids. I mean, I have two amazing kids, Henry and Hattie. When Hattie was little, she was a, an, an emotional force to be reckoned with. And, and, and her little will was, uh, I mean, Darcy and I both joke that her, her will, it aged us. I mean, it was, she is a powerhouse. Emotional tantrums. Do we like, be like, this girl's too much, we're going to give her away? No. We, what we saw in her and what we saw even in the, in the, the unfortunate um, outbursts of her temperament as a young girl, we saw what she was capable of becoming in Jesus, and we loved her toward that. And she is blossoming into this beautiful, vibrant young woman who, who understands that her parents love her and are committed to her no matter what. Same with my son, Henry. Have we ever had difficulties or challenges within the relationship? Listen, if you have kids going through middle school, you're not going to like them because they're hormonal messes. But do you just abandon them? No, you're committed to them. You covenant with your children and you love them. But why don't we treat marriages the same way? Where we're like, well, because you're an adult, you should know better. Listen, we are all people in progress. And the power of marriage is that it actually forces you to be confronted with the reality of sinful humanity. And the way that we actually reveal 
our love as Christians is how we love one another and how we love each other through our brokenness to help each other grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus, which requires a mutual self-surrender. As long as we think that marriage is here to benefit me personally and it is only good as long as I am personally happy, you are setting yourself up for failure and you are turning marriage into an idol that it was never meant to be. I think it's also important to state in, in, uh, in the beginning here that the common cultural belief that somehow singles are incomplete is driven from a false understanding of what marriage is about. And as Keller points out, in the purpose of marriage uh, is not self-fulfillment. Only God can offer true fulfillment. And I think it's important if you're a single here today, you're either, you're, not many people that are single are, are saying, God has called me. I don't believe in the gift of singleness as a spiritual gift. There's nowhere in scripture that calls it a, a spiritual gift. What it is called in scripture is a choice. Uh, Jesus chose to remain single. Was Jesus an incomplete or unfulfilled human being? Why does the church treat singleness as, as something that, that is second class? It should not. In fact, Paul actually hoped that all Christians would be single as he was. Why? Because it allowed them the free, uh, the free ability to give themselves in full devotion to Jesus without any distraction. Because marriage is a beautiful distraction uh, that has the potential to reflect Jesus. Uh, but it still means that you have to live fully for another person who you are connected to in covenant. So I think that it's important. Uh, even Keller said that he often, his church is filled with singles and he often preached on marriage because it was so important for the church because of the, of the false ideas around marriage. It actually makes singles feel like they're less, um, the lesser in turning the, the hope of the of the, the future husband or wife into an idol. And it also has the ability, uh, it also has the ability to unhinge uh, what I think is true, which is the, the modern idolatry of independence and personal fulfillment, which leads many single people to rule out possible partners because they have a false idea of what perfection is. I mean, you think about how our, how our society portrays marriage um, and what it should look like. They portray it as it should be this, this emotionally romantic, intense thing that lasts to the end of their life. And let's face it, the notebook is not Ryan Gosling's best work, okay? <laughs> he may be handsome, but that movie is so... It portrays, it portrays a, a, an unrealistic standard that portrays a couple that just like, they fell head over heels and it just lasted all the way to the end of the, they never stopped feeling that romantic fire. Um, that, is, that is not reality, and yet that is what is fed into our narrative as a society again and again until it creates uh, uh, the temptation to quickly become uh, disenchanted with the fact that men and women by nature are incompatible. I think that that is a really helpful thing. If we just started there, I think we could begin to move towards some, some real good. Now, before I jump into the text, one further thing that I want to talk about is that gender, according to Scripture, is not a social construct. This is something that we're being faced with today that is super important for us to understand. Humans were created, according to the Bible, 
male and female rather than gender neutral. And they were also created equal. Both genders were formed in God's image, given dominion over the earth and commanded to procreate. Only together can they fulfill God's plan. And I think that this is really important because what we are dealing with today is not only a, a gender neutrality, but I think, uh, but a rethinking of the distinction in roles that have nothing to do with equality, and it is turning upside down our understanding of what family is. And here's the problem. I think it plays itself out in the church. Uh, Donald Blush, in his foundation series, laid out three uh, natural temptations uh, or tendencies within the conflict between men and women. Uh, and he says that there's different ways. It depends on the lens that you're looking through. But he says that there are, there are three lenses, and only one of them is a, is a biblical lens. The first lens that is an incorrect lens, before we get into the two verses we're going to consider, is the idea that the, that the relationship between a husband and wife is like a march. That is, that it's that patriarchal vision where men lead and women follow behind, quietly and submissively. And I think that this picture is, is a picture of domination that has nothing to do with the biblical data. In fact, I think it's important for us to see that, that the call for women to submit and men to love is that the submission and the love work in mutual surrender and trust of one another. And there's a, there's a care that, that occurs that, that cannot be found if a woman is silently marching behind the, the domineering man. In fact, if we look at the Genesis account, Woman was not taken out of the back of man. She was taken out of his side as one who fulfills the image of God, completes the image of God. Woman is not given to man to fulfill his dreams and his hopes, but woman comes out of man as a partner in life to fulfill God's plans and God's purposes. And this is something that we do together in partnership. The second vision that is incorrect is what is happening in our society right now, which is an eradication of gender distinction, which turns the relationship between men and women into a competition. It turns it into a race where there is no distinction between men and women, and then we're competing in society for superiority. And we see this being played out all around us right now. There is a continued challenge against, against traditional visions of, of uh, chivalry, of being a gentleman. Of, there's, there's, there's constant uh, challenges and, and fights about, about supremacy. Women are actually dominating men in every arena right now uh, as far as education goes. And I think that there is, there is a lot, uh, there is a lot that's, that's at play that is building into the narrative as a society that we have to actually deal with as Christians working from a biblical vision. Our relationship with one another is not to be a race, nor is it to be a march. And I think that Blush's third category is the most helpful. And he says what it is to be is covenantal. And he uses the illustration of a dance. And I think that this is a beautiful illustration. Someone needs to lead when you're dancing with a partner, but it's mutual surrender. It's, and nobody is, is domineering over the other. For the dance to be beautiful, to be graceful, there needs to be someone leading, but from the perspective of those around, it doesn't look like it. It looks like they are one, and that is what the two shall become, right? Is one. 
The oneness is beautiful. It's not the diminishment of either personhood, but it's actually the full realization of the persons coming together in covenantal relationship. And I think that this is really helpful. So to, to establish these verses as we jump into this, I think that, that it's important to state those things. I want our marriages to be like a dance, not a clumsy one. It might be clumsy, but hey, you got to get close enough to another uh, to discover how clumsy you are. And so this is the risk involved in relationship. Uh, so let's begin with verse 18, chapter 3 of Colossians. Here it is. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, <laughs> I've done a lot of weddings, and I've had girls say, don't use any verse that says submit. I'm like, all right, well, pick your, pick your marriage passage then. I'm like, like, I don't, I'm like, take it up with Jesus. I'm just, I'm just giving you the Bible. <laughs> like, we are Christians, right? So if there's a natural instinct within you as a, as a woman, uh, whether single or married right now, that just cringes at the concept of submission, may I possibly inject into your vision that it's, that it's distorted, that it's not correct, that it might be actually shaped more by what, what are complaints against Christianity that aren't founded in what the Bible actually says, but founded in misrepresentations of the Scripture, misrepresentations of Jesus and his heart. The idea of submit, it does mean what it says. It means to be subordinate. Um, but what does that actually mean in the context of the scripture? And before we move into the call for wives to submit, let's put it into its actual gospel context. Okay, here's the context. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Before Paul delves into the role of, of husbands and wives, he says this to the Christian community. He says, therefore, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Galatians 3.28 gives us this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if this is the reality, if we are equal, if we are one in Jesus, if we are to submit to one another in reverence to Christ, what does it actually mean then for a wife to submit to her husband? What is it calling her to do? I like um, in the Mirror Bible written by a few Trinitarian guys, they give a, a, a definitely a softened translation of this particular verse. It says, wives, place yourselves in the intimate care of your husbands, acknowledging the lordship of Christ in them. I think that's a really beautiful and actually gets to the heart of what women are being called to here. I think that this picture given to us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. When it says that the husband is the head of the wife, is that saying that he's the brain? That he's the one that makes every decision? No, it's talking about order, because it says that Christ is the head of the church. It even says that Christ actually submitted to the Father. Is the Father, the Son, not equal? No. They're one God, three persons. They are in mutual surrender to one another because mutual surrender is what is necessary always for healthy relationships. But there is something that we cannot overlook. And what we cannot overlook is that 
again and again and again, the scripture puts an emphasis upon submission for women and an emphasis for love for men. So if we were to say, husbands, love your wives, does that mean that wives should not love their husbands? We would never say that. But why is it that so often when the scripture is misrepresented, we would say that a husband never submits to his wife? You see, the emphasis, I think, has to do with the distinctions, the beautiful differences between the genders. That the natural, the natural default setting for a woman is the desire to feel safe. And husbands often do things that don't make their wives feel safe. The natural default setting for a husband in his fallen state is to not love his wife well. Doesn't mean he doesn't love her, but he doesn't make her feel like he's being trustworthy in his experience. And so this is, I think Paul is actually getting into the distinctions. He's not saying that wives submit and husbands don't. He's saying that wives are gonna struggle with submitting and husbands are gonna struggle with loving well. And so if we were to consider submission in, in these terms, that submission is essentially, or surrender is essentially implicit trust. The woman is again and again told through the New Testament to submit to her husband, but the husband is meant to what? To love his wife as Christ loved the church. What did Jesus do? So submission is not a picture of dominance. Submission is not a picture of slavery, but it is the surrender of one's will to another as we see Christ being played out in them. The challenge that we face is that the verses, there's a little bit of ambiguity in all of the texts on marriage, and I think it's purposeful. The commands remain the same, that we are to submit to one another, to love one another, and that we're to do it in a way that reflects the life and the heart of Jesus. But the details of how that's played out is left nuanced because all of us are different. Now, my wife and I are both type A personalities. We're both dominant temperaments, so I don't have a passive wife. In fact, yesterday, and sir, if you're here, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're at a wine shop, right? This is, this is my wife, uh, and, and a man pulls up on a bicycle with a three-year-old toddler in the back of the bike, and he says, honey, stay here. She's like strapped into a bike seat, and he parks his bike on Division and goes into a store and leaves his toddler on the street of Division. And let me just tell you, I'm not a naturally confrontational person, and all the only confronting I was doing was confronting Darcy and not confront, it's fine, we're watching her, she's fine, she's fine. Like, it's not fine, it's not fine. Like the fire, my wife has a, has a power and an authority, and I mean, she's, she would be comfortable putting both of us in life-threatening situations if she felt that there was an injustice before us, okay? So this is not like the, she is not, I am not a domineering husband, and she is not a weak wife. And I can tell you, we both understand the power of this passage because we know what it was like to be married before we knew Jesus. And I can tell you that the roles were reversed. Darcy was forced to be this constant mothering personality and this free-spirited, um, unwieldy young man uh, who refused to be pinned down by any sort of responsibility. And it forced her to be the one who was constantly in the role of authority in the marriage because I was like a little kid constantly in trouble. And let me tell you, if, if that's you with your husband, 
wives, you can agree with me, and I know my wife would agree, that is not sexy. You're like, oh, I just want to marry a, a small boy. <laughs> Can't wait to get a boy and shape him into the man he wants. Like, it's not, I promise you, ask Darcy, it is not worth it. <laughs> because it's not what a wife, and what it made Darcy feel, even though she's a strong personality, my wife is, the, she, you would not want, nobody in this room wants me to manage the checkbook. This is why I don't do the finances of the church. Bad. You would not be confident, generous people if I was handling finances. Uh, it, Darcy, we understand our partnership. Her submission to me is not her giving me dominance over her. Her submission to me is trusting me as her husband and as her partner to love me and to reflect Jesus and to lead. But leading her is done in partnership with her thoughts, her advice. Often her thoughts and her advice trumps my my thoughts, because we are working in life together. And I think that this is a, a proper understanding of surrender. She trusts me. And when things aren't good in our marriage, and when she is reluctant to submit, it's when, I, it's when there's a breakdown in that fundamental trust that God calls us to with one another. So this isn't about wives being weak. This is about, even when Peter talks about love your wife as the weaker vessel, he's not talking about intellectual or spiritual weakness. He's talking about the literal reality that men are physically stronger. Husbands, love your wives, protect them. Be a protector. That shouldn't offend us. That's a reality. I think that this is important for us to understand. When we see this here, this power why is it difficult for women to submit to their husbands? Why is it hard? Genesis 3.16 tells us that the fall, there was going to be conflict between the male-female relationship. He says to the woman, after the fall, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That there's going to be conflict. That submission requires implicit trust. And the question is, is are we as husbands living in a way that loves our wives to where it's easy for her to trust us. The challenge of the verse, ladies, is it doesn't give clauses. It doesn't say submit to your husband if. Last time I preached through this text a few years ago, I got myself into a lot of trouble because I, like all of us, have a temptation growing up in a broken home and being raised by a mother. I have a lot of empathy for for women and how they're treated, and I applied my own lens to the scripture and added the clause. Well, ladies, only submit if he's worth submitting to. The Bible doesn't say that, and I got taken out by some elders and had to apologize to the church a week later. It's very easy for us to apply a grid that goes beyond what the scriptures say to make ourselves comfortable with the challenge of the text. The covenant means that I'm committed if you are married to a man who is, is being immature, who isn't being responsible, I think that one of the things that, that Paul tells to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, to stay with them, to submit to them, to be a revelation of what it looks like to be submitted to Jesus, that through the witness of your own gentleness and humility and testimony to your relationship with Christ, that they might be won over. And so he tells us, he tells us that, Covenant is to be taken seriously. This is why it's so important on the front end that we take time 
to get to know the ones that we're going to marry, that we go through the proper. If you're thinking about getting married, you should go through premarital. You should be taking all the steps. You should be talking to the community of faith that you're around and involve them in your relationship because we are called to cover each other and to protect each other and to help each other make good decisions. And I think that this is important. So here's what it does say, though. I think this is important. In verse 19, it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, if I was to take the mirror translation, I like what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives tenderly and do not exasperate them. (laughs) Unfortunately, Darcy, I love you so well, but I'm always exasperating for everybody that knows me well. So I'm sorry. And she's not leaving me because I'm an exasperating person. I don't know how she sticks with me. But it's because we're committed to Jesus that gives us the ability to love each other well. Um, and I think that this, if the, if the first verse is, says, ladies, stand by your man, the second verse is, men, cherish your lady. I think it's interesting that we live in a time in which the, the relationship between the genders has become so confused and such a competition that there has been the eradication of men being gentlemen the eradication of, of chivalry has become something. Think about the retell, the, the, even Disney's retelling of narratives uh, around the, the, the classic idea of, of, of the prince saving the princess, that that's viewed as some sort of diminishment of the value of women. And I think that, that there's, there's all sorts of problems uh, with the way that we're viewing the relationship between men and women that's robbing uh, men of the responsibility to be gentlemen. I don't think it's ever wrong to open a door for a woman. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. And I've never met a woman who said, how dare you open the door for me? <laughs> I can do it myself. <laughs> like, that's just being polite. Um, and I think that this, this whole picture, husbands love your wives. Why does it say, why does it not say husbands submit to your wives? I, I'll tell you this, because it's not hard for men to trust their wives. It's not hard. That's not something that men tend to struggle with, but men do struggle with loving well. I think that this is important. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, keeping love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, some of you men already are saying, wait a minute, I love my wife. I tell her I love her all the time. Oh, well, join the stinking club. So do I, okay? I tell my wife every day that she's the most beautiful woman I've ever known. Every day I tell her she's beautiful. There's never a day, but does she always feel loved by me? No. And there's a reason, because there is a default setting, and for men to become so preoccupied, so forward-thinking, so ambitious, so in another place, that one of the greatest difficulties for men, and this is an area that Paul will get into next week, and I think he's so helpful in, is that we don't pay attention, and we don't take initiative. I was, this is something that Paul talked about that I thought was so convicting. He said, he says, one of the deepest needs that women have is for their husbands to just take initiative. That it actually, the lack of initiative is one of the things that makes women feel unsafe. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I'll do anything my wife asks me. He's like, exactly. She has to ask you. So I'll be like, I'll go home and I'll be like, honey, we need a date. We need a date. We never get time together. And then I walk away. <laughs> and she's like, why don't you? I need you to take care of that for us so that we can be together. And if not, I'm going to throw a fit and be frustrated. 
and be pensive and removed and detached from the family because I'm not getting the quality time that I deserve. Notice it's a personal fulfillment thing. Is it wrong to want time with my wife? No, it's perfectly right. But is it wrong for me to never take the initiative to actually make it happen? Yes. And that is a deep If Darcy says, honey, come home at this time. We're going to go out and do that. I'm going to be there. But she needs for me to be like, honey, I'm coming home to get you. Get ready. I've arranged for the kids to do this. Has that ever happened? I don't know if I've ever done that, but I'm going to, <laughs> baby, you and me. Anyone willing to take Henry and Hattie after church today out to a movie? <laughs> I think that this is important in regards to what does it mean to actually love our wives? One of the verses that I think is so helpful is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And when Gary Bashirs came and spoke to the men at a men's breakfast a few years ago, he utilized this verse and really explained it in a way that I thought was super helpful. He said, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And he goes, let's not even worry ourselves with the weaker vessel statement. Let's actually start with what really is easy to get our heads around. Live with your wives in an understanding way. He says, live with your wives. And, he, and I was like, why do you keep saying that? I do live with my wife. And he goes, no, to live with your wife is to be present with your wife. You can be in the house and you're living in the game you're watching on television or the book that you're reading or the emails that you're answering and you're not living with your wife. You're not present. This is one of the deepest needs. I think that as a, as a husband who I'm driven, I love physical affection. But it doesn't, my wife doesn't want to be physically affection, affectionate with a guy who is mentally absent. And I think that this is important for us to understand that when the scriptures, you guys, as you can tell, I mean, I'm preaching to you something that I'm like, have I even done that? I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're, we're in this together, Okay. And, and I feel like Darcy and I have a good marriage, a loving, healthy friendship, but it can be better. And I believe that for you. And many of you do not even have, even have good, you've given up. You've lost sight of the covenant. You've become self-focused on what you're not getting out of it. And I think that these are the questions that like, am I trusting my husband? Am I loving my wife in a way that actually makes, makes her feel like she is loved and cherished. What am I doing? When I get home from work, do I share what I did and then, and then disappear into the room before she has an, a chance to share her day? Do I treat what her experience is as valuable? I think that this is important because, listen, I've talked with a lot of you. There's a lot of marriages who are, that are struggling, different, different places, some marriages, and nothing has been more heartbreaking for me to marry a couple and for it to end in divorce. And it's happened twice to me at Door of Hope since the church has started. And I'm grateful that it isn't more, but it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that we should be okay with even a single divorce because it says that God hates divorce. Why? Because he, because he loves us so much and he knows how much damage it does to our hearts, to our, to our personhood. He knows, he knows the years of recovery that it can take to get over it. He understands. He hates it because he loves us and he wants the best for us. And I think that these two questions around around trust and love, around submission and true, intentional, self-sacrificial care are essential. And now I ask the question, does a husband submit to his wife? Yes, he does. 
We submit every day. The submission is the submission to Christ, which means that we live a life of self-surrender. That submission is putting the other person's needs before your own. It's, it's recognizing that they are more important than your personal satisfaction and trusting them and loving them toward what they can become in Jesus. What we need is a fresh vision of one another because marriage brings out all the ugliness. It brings out all the, all the blemishes. It brings out the dysfunctions. It brings out the childhood baggages. It brings out the past relationships. And the reality is, is that only the gospel only the heart empowered by the Holy Spirit infused with the love of Christ can actually push through that and bring redemption to, those, to our broken narratives. God wants to bring redemption through our marriages. And I think that what we have to do is we have to begin to actually look at the person with the eyes of Jesus and love them toward what they can become. We commit to the marriage because the covenant is not something we should be looking for a way to get out of. It's something that we should be looking constantly for a way to actually improve and to make it all that God wants it to be. And, and a lot of it is simple communication. A lot of it is, is a breakdown in our ability to truly be honest with one another. A lot of it has to do simply with sin on both sides. I'm not saying that there's always equality and why marriages break down. It's not, there's not equal blame in every marriage when there's brokenness. But there is a reality that sin gets a hold of a heart and sin is never done in a vacuum and it has its impact and plays itself out in relationships and often marriages suffer the most because that's who we live the closest to. And I think that this is something that we need to recognize that we have to be a people who surrender to one another out of reverence to the Lord and who love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the key to healthy marriages, to strong marriages. The key always comes back to the gospel. It's about embracing Christ's love with an open heart. It's about accepting his total and absolute love for you in such a way that it becomes transformative in the way that you actually deal with every relationship. It's about recognizing that Jesus has made a covenant with you. When you trusted him as your savior, you were born again and brought to newness of life and your life is no, was purchased at a price and secured in his covenantal commitment to be your savior and your king. That God is not content to exist without you. That he loves you in spite of all your brokenness and he isn't interested in getting the best parts of you. He's interested in all of you, the good and the bad. And when we recognize that that's how Jesus loves us, that's how Jesus gives himself to us, when we accept that love that he offers to us, it actually inflames our hearts with that same love and gives us the ability to actually enter into relationships with an entirely new lens. Let the gospel inform your marriage. Let the gospel inform our relationships as a community. May we be a people that submit to one another out of reverence to the Lord. And may we make Jesus known by our love for one another. Amen?